Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey this very long journey. I want to thank you all for tuning into my show each and every week. I know you have a choice. I know you have a huge number of Doctor Who podcasts to listen to each week, and I am thrilled that you have chosen mine. We have been going on this journey together for the last 18 months. Happy to have you on board, and I hope you stick around until the very end of this show and bring as many of your friends as you can. There's been a lot going on in my life over the last week. This episode is being released on Sunday morning, on Saturday night. I went to a Radio Theater NYC performance in the West Village in Manhattan, and they put on several excellent shows a year, usually radio-style performances of old-time horror classics. Last night was four Edgar Allan Poe short stories and a poem. Brought my kid, brought one of my friends, he brought his kid. Four of us had a phenomenal time. If you're ever in the NYC area, do check them out. Television-wise, we are still probably about six months away from the next Doctor Who episode. In the meantime, I have gotten hooked on Yellow Jackets, which is a streaming show here in the U.S., produced in Canada. Hopefully, my international audience can also get access to this. It is a terrific show. It is reaching the end of Season 2. I watched the first 17 episodes in 17 days earlier this month. And this past episode, which was released on streaming on Friday, was the first time that I've actually gotten to see the show live. I am absolutely, absolutely obsessed. Hopefully some of you are too. Take it from a bird named after a Roman emperor who was also unjustly accused of heinous acts. You are not a murderer, Misty. You're a closer. And that was a brief role for the great John Cameron Mitchell in season two of Yellow Jackets. Turning back to Doctor Who, I am very positive on this week's episode, Castrovalva. It is the first televised Peter Davison story, the fourth story produced. It is the first Doctor Who story to feature a cold open, which I played at the very top of the program. My guest this week is the great Graham Burke from the Great Reality Bomb podcast, we are going to have a very extensive discussion 
on Castor Valva, the TV serial, and Castor Valva, the novelization by the great Christopher H. Bidmead. Graham loves the book. Graham perhaps does not love the TV episode as much as I do, but we have a very healthy and productive discussion about it. Not everybody is going to love your favorite story, but that is not a reason to take things personally. My guest last week, Conrad, gave us a terrific reading from the first three pages of Meglos. Always happy to have Conrad on the show. And just yesterday, I got mail from Conrad, unexpected. Last week, if you'll recall, he was uh, playing show-and-tell with me, and he was showing me some Doctor Who postcards that he got from the Longleat Festival in the 1980s. And he has sent me one of his postcards. Dear Jason, Conrad writes, Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. I found the enclosed when digging through my collection and thought this belongs with you from one season 18 fan to another. Love and entropy, Conrad. And it is a postcard of Anthony Ainley in the Pharos Project control room. I strongly believe this would have been the reference photo given to Andrew Skilleter when he painted the cover to the Legopolis novelization. A very similar pose, Anthony Ainley in full costume. Very happy to have this. I will be adding this to my desk at work so I can take inspiration from Anthony Ainley's character whenever I'm doing my day job. We have six new Doctor Who novels or novellas coming out later this year from Puffin. That's a division of Penguin. It's going to be one book for each of Doctor Who's six decades on the air featuring six different Doctors. There's a Tom Baker story in there. There's a William Hartnell story in there. There appears to be a Peter Capaldi and a David Tennant and a Matt Smith as well. There's going to be a lot, a lot of new Doctor Who fiction coming out around the 60th anniversary. We also have the Doomsday Multimedia platform, which is coming to us very soon. These are great times to be a Doctor Who fan. Now, while I had a great time, Recording with Graham this past week, you will notice that there are some audio glitches in this recording, and there are a couple of moments, perhaps some more obvious than others, where Graham and I had to go back and patch over some of the missing audio with newly recorded material. I did lose a little bit. Graham has a lot to say, and I did have to edit around some of the audio dropouts. Hopefully that's not too noticeable. But the point is, I'm very excited to get to this week's conversation with Graham Burke. And following that, my review of Doctor Who, Castro Valva, the novelization. Let's get to it. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, Reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more, Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. So, Graham Burke, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature it has been double the life of the podcast since I last saw you. You were here for episode 38, Mask of Mandragora, and now you're back for twice 38, episode 76, Castravalva. Oh my god, it has been literally six Doctor Who years since the last time we spoke. Oh, that's right. We've gone from season 14 to season 19. 
Yep. You are aging in reverse, and I am aging in double time, so you're actually younger than me now. <laughs> it's my pleasant open face, I can assure you. <laughs> Although, as listeners of this podcast know from my controversial Meglos episode last week, Terrence first used pleasant open face not to describe Peter Davison, but uh, the banker character from Meglos, the Earthling. <laughs> I have no words for that. That is amazing. Um, <laughs> it's nice to know he had it in reserve anyways. God bless Terrence. That's amazing. Terrence is sitting there in his attic with his typewriter going, what description should I recycle from my past books to describe this new doctor? I know, a tertiary character from a book that I hated writing. Pretty much. Well, you know, aren't they all books they hated writing by that point? I don't know. <laughs> We're doing Four to Doomsday next week, and that's Terrence again. And he seems to enjoy Four to Doomsday quite a bit, actually, in places. Whereas oh, Megalos, uh, he was uh, just throwing shade. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I love, I love Terrence dearly, but I have to say, as soon as it sort of became a steady paycheck, it just never quite captured the magic for me. Unless he was doing Pertwee's that he had, that he, that he loved script editing, those were pretty great. I love, I love the Mind of Evil and Love Inferno. Um, so those are eighties, those are eighties Terrence that I, I really like, but a lot of them, not so much. One of the giants is pretty good, but yeah. Also when he's writing Robert Holmes, I think caves of Andrew Zani, he does astounding work and that's going to be coming up in a few months on this show, but yeah, they're not all going to be like caves of Andrew Zani or mind of evil. No, 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 they're not. There's, there's quite a few that are just kind of. Paying, paying the rent, which is funny. Like, like, <laughs> I would love to pay the rent by by hey, that would have been my choice too, frankly, if I could if I could choose any profession. <laughs> so we talk about this week's book, which is not by Terrence Dix, surprisingly. Let's talk about you. You have been crushing it lately. I've been following obviously Reality Bomb, and not just the episodes on which I cameo, but your recent episode, I think 107 about Jinx Monsoon, is just absolute fire, man. That is scorching. Oh, that's kind of you to say. Um, it was I, I, I genuinely came at it from a place of curiosity. I know nothing about Drag Race. I know nothing about Jinx Monsoon. I just had like my best friend texting me uh, all these things about how great this was, and then I had and then I and then I had a, one of my other best friends, Jim Sangster, like going, "Oh, hey, 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 you know." Just kind of went in with a sense of curiosity, and and those guys just bring it. And Kim Rogers was 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 fire as well. She was just really really great. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was a it was a fun month, I have to say. Yeah, Jim and Kim were absolutely aligned, even though I gather they did not know each other before the recording. Yeah, they, they, never, they never met. <laughs> they were definitely singing out of the same songbook and perfectly in harmony. Oh, they were. They were. It was amazing. It was amazing. And, you know, I really, you know, I mean, it was, it's, it's a really kind of good piece of, ca it's a, it's a great piece of casting, period, because I think, I think, I think Jinx is just a multi-talented, uh, multi-talented actress. But I really appreciated what, what both uh, Scott and Jim had to say about that. Yeah, Scott's editorial was also – I actually played that twice because it was just really – even though I've never watched a single episode of Drag Race, that editorial was a thing of beauty. Oh, it really was. And, and I, just, I, just, I just thought, you know, he, he, he got the, the, his kind of thought that, you know, this isn't some weird deep cut. This is, this is 
for 2023, this is mainstream. This is a mainstream form of, of uh, stunt casting, which I thought was just absolutely true. No, RTD is definitely, I mean, between Neil Patrick Harris, who's been a legitimate star for 40 years, and now, since you recorded that reality bomb, we now have the Jonathan Groff casting. And with Doctor Who going to be streaming on Disney Plus in the States, Jonathan Groff is already all over Disney Plus, thanks to Frozen and Frozen 2 and Hamilton. Yeah. So, no, I think I, I think it's I think it I think it's uh, I think that's a wonderful casting, too. And it's so it's so funny because, you know, when I, I, I heard he was cast, I immediately thought about Mindhunter. And it took me like a minute to kind of go, oh, wait, it's also King George from Hamilton. So it was just like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's a there's a whole other thing that he does, um, which is amazing. So, yeah. And I had just seen him in the last M. Night Shyamalan movie where he does get oh. a musical performance even though it is a uh, psychological horror film <laughs> i am very much looking forward to this this is uh, i mean the, if the if the next season of doctor who isn't already you know uh, i'm already like so excited about it just not by the virtue of the fact that hey look uh we it's being run by someone who understands the value of having i don't know a trailer um story titles um actual things to promote the fans general sense of excitement um you know uh <laughs> if that alone didn't already have me pretty much there uh the rest of it um yeah I, i'm i'm pretty much here for it although you know there's a lot of good stunt casting going around all over the tv landscape i don't know if you're into yellow jackets i've just gotten into yellow jackets in a pretty heavy way but this last week's episode had john cameron mitchell doing a Musical cameo is a live-action parrot. Oh, my God. Okay. So now okay. RTD is going to have to raise the bar because the bar has been raised by Yellow Jackets. I, th- I, th- I, think, I think he's doing pretty good with raising the, raising the, raising the already. I mean, you know, you have, you have Shooty Gawa in a Regency costume. Um, yes. You know, so, oh, like, <laughs> we're just going to raise the bar by having, having Shooty just... Yeah, there is a new shooty costume reveal every week now, so that's just great. I just, I just, I just adore it. Um, yeah, yeah. Remember when, remember when Doctor Who, what it was like to like get teased by actual images from Doctor Who, like months and months and months ahead instead of like you know two weeks before. Um, yeah, yeah. Good times. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think RTD is playing with a slightly larger marketing budget and more hands on deck than poor Chris Chibnall had at the end of his run. But at least it does feel like a new beginning for the show. I don't think you need money. I think you I think you just need, I don't know, an actual desire to promote your show. Uh, I, 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 yes, Disney budget is one thing, but I don't know. He had access to, I don't know, a New Year's special he had completed a year before. And having a Comic-Con panel, he still only showed still photos of it. You know, like, like, like I'm sorry, I, I, as much, I know Chris Chibnall is a lovely man, and we now have actual, actual kind of empirical proof of that, thanks to Gallifrey and his marvelous Reality Bomb interview with, with, with Joy a couple of weeks ago. But nonetheless, I'm sorry, I go back to the fact that in 2020, the year of our Lord that could die in a trash fire, when we most needed hope, <laughs> 
Doctor Who trailer could provide, and maybe even a Doctor Who casting announcement of, like, John Barrowman being in the special could provide for a special that was in the can for over a year, by the way. Did I mention this? Like, this is not, like, an actual <laughs> thing that they made last week that they don't have the assets for. They had this for over a year, and when they actually had Doctor Who at New York Comic Con, albeit virtual for the sake of you know because we were all living a trash fire they showed us four still photographs including one of them at a family table <laughs> yeah you know disney disney plus budget yeah that's one thing but i don't know just actually showing assets in time for comic-con that's kind of just basic professionalism i think and i will just drop my favorite bit of trivia on the day that Shooty Gatwa's casting as Doctor Who was announced, he had more Instagram followers before the cast announcement than people who had watched Legend of the Sea Devils. I love that stat. I'm using that stat in, in future episodes of Reality Bomb. Thank you. <laughs> and oh what do they do? They, they they had Shooty like immediately drop that two diamonds and a you know two hearts and a and a and a this and you're like going what the hell and all of a sudden ah. That's amazing. I like that was just like canny. Like that wasn't a Disney. That wasn't a Disney Plus budget. That was just someone who was smart who knew how to use Instagram. How amazing! I love. I, 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 I'm just so happy to have the show being actually marketed by people who care about marketing. Um, yeah. Now, Doctor Who Online does have the specter of toxic negativity hanging over it, and people have already complained mm -hmm. about the latest trailer. They've complained about the fact that the 2005 to 2009 opening titles were briefly seen in the trailers, as if that's a bad thing. And this is for a show that's going back to his 1974 logo. I don't see how that's a problem, but toxic negativity All manages right. to find a way to uh, spit on everything. Hey do, you, hey, do you remember our friend Carrie? And do you remember how she used to put up this hand puppet of death when things like this got said and just go, wah, 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 wah? Yes. Yeah, I do that all the time now. Wah, 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 wah. Oh, how terrible it's using the titles for, I don't know, the version of Doctor Who that was watched by 10 million people. <laughs> During a time when they're actually reuniting that cast. Hmm. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to visually work on a podcast, but I'm here for it. <laughs> Just imagine Graham doing a manic hand puppet at double speed. Yeah, towards... yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'll point out that we are fighting bad audio quality and video quality throughout this call. So you appear to be sitting in a cave in Tora Bora, but hopefully the audience will have a crystal clear image of your hand gestures yeah it's like absolutely absolutely yeah I, I i am i am i am like you know trashing trashing operator speed on this one i can say <laughs> trashic operator speed speaking of deep cuts <laughs> so uh, yeah we, we've talked about toxic negativity in doctor who fandom and then last week i had a very unexpected encounter with toxic positivity as uh Several people dared to get upset that I mentioned the fact that Megalos is not a very highly popular story in the in the annual Doctor Who surveys. So having discussed toxic negativity and toxic positivity, let's just go and switch gears for some unabashed positivity, non-toxic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Non talk to me. I know this is your favorite book of all time, or at least it was before the last John Irving came out. <laughs> it's my favorite Doctor Who novel, to be sure. In fact, I am on this podcast right now because of my dear friend Jim Sangster, who reviewed this in his Target novel blog and said it wasn't very good. And I have this to say to you, Jim. You're going to have to bleep me. You were completely wrong on this. 
Okay, I'm here because I'm. I actually plotted out when I could be next on the show because I had to say because I'm here to say Castor Valva is an amazing book. It is. Uh, it, it, I'm not the biggest fan of the TV version. I I was a huge fan of it as a kid because well I'd say kid I was 14, but because it was kind of it was kind of it was the first time I'd seen Peter Davison's Doctor. Obviously, it was the first time. I'd really seen new, new Doctor Who, and it was kind of like the shock of the new was so amazing during it. And, you know, to, to sort of watch him sort of shed Tom Baker's gear and then, you know, and then gradually kind of emerge and, and the master's there. And it's all very exciting. And I don't I couldn't make a lick of sense of the plot, but but it was it was really great. But um, but over the years, you know, watching Castor Valva again and again and again, I, it kind of suffers from that Chris Bidney construction and, and Logopolis is the same where like episode one is it, they're all separate episodes they're just sort of sticky taped together in the most kind of well I think it will hold together and it's just and, but it's all cello taped and you just and you're just and it's just barely holding together and you know so you got you know you've got you know episode one which is entirely set in the TARDIS as it gets deeper and deeper and then episode two is this weird transitional one where they eventually wind up on Castor Valva but you know they sort of escape the jeopardy in the TARDIS but and then and then episodes three and four are in Castor Valva but it's sort of they you know it's it sort of each one has their, their own kind of different focus and so the fact that there's something to do with block transfers which is barely explained in the previous story so it's it's kind of just magic, I guess. Um, so I'm not. So all is to say is that I, I I you know I think I think I think TV Castor Valva is a good six out of ten story. I like it a lot, you know. But when the feelings of nostalgia go, it's kind of just there. Um, great Patty Caddy Pingsland story. Great Patty Kingsland score though. Yes. But let's talk about the book. The book is amazing because the book basically just pushes it all, all these things together and makes it actually work as a cohesive whole. It makes it a giant journey, which is which is really, really wonderful. But the thing I love most about it, and and I know I know yours isn't the podcast that does the does the readings. I just love the prose in this book. Um here we go. So this is this is um this is when the this is when they're they're you know they're they're doing the if moment and they're pushing the button to to to, to escape from the escape from winding in, in in event one. And so here here this is what this is what Bibby writes and I just love this. It's it's like the universe was brilliant with approaching stars that were now as close together as sunbeams dancing on water among the dazzling points of light the tiny blue craft sped inconspicuously towards its doom an oak leaf riding on a tidal flood but nothing is inevitably so even the fixed discourse may change or may be changed quite suddenly the police box became huge exploding in a flash of dazzling blue light that dimmed the rushing cosmic panorama the explosion seemed to drain color and substance from the craft leaving as the flash subsided a ghostly tardis image continuing on in the same course in their inverted time scale the stars drew closer and closer until they were packed like pebbles on a beach like grains of sand like molecules in granite and like the atoms of a diamond and then it was event one the beginning of everything a sharp white nothing that blotted out the worlds to come i freaking love that like that is like brilliant quality prose that is like it's it's great science it's great science fiction writing it's just imaginative really illustrative prose and and, and it's actually kind of you know i i read this book for the first time when i was 15 and and it's talking to you in language that 
unless you unless you really care about school, you don't. It, it's not really you know. It's more grown up writing, and I just loved it for that kind of that kind of uh, that kind of thoughtfulness to it. And and the other the other passage, I'm going to pass pack out my my readings, and then I'll, and then I'm done for the day. But uh, but I but I, I love a. Uh, but I love this little bit from uh, I love I love this little bit uh, when 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 the doctor's climbing up the rocks and and they have this bit and, and I just love this little reference because it's it's something that you wish could have been in the TV production because he says in fact the doctor had only the distant glimmer of an idea about where he was going something deep and instinctive was driving him upwards towards Castrovalva occasionally he stopped to examine the blood trail and his eyes would wander over the edge of the path and down the steep hill to the hungry white teeth of the rocks below him. But apart from the giddiness, he remained unaware of the danger. His mind was filled with subliminal images of other dizzying heights, flashes of girders and gantries shaped like a giant bowl in the sky, from which someone he had once known well was swinging on a single cable that stretched and snapped strand by strand. A melee of echoing voices seemed to be calling, Doctor! Voices from the past and the, from the future, jangling together in a desperate cacophony. He was not to know that among the confusion of sounds in his mind were the real shouts of Tegan and Nyssa, blown on the wind from far below. Doctor! The voices called, all of them in a ragged chorus, and he realized that he too was calling the doctor, that he needed emergently, and that somewhere along the white walls that crested the hill, he might stand a chance of finding him. I love that. I love that. That's that's something I genuinely wish could have been in the episode because you know the, this this brief flashback to to just before he regenerated is is so brilliant and and yeah so the prose is littered with things like this all the way through. I, I just I just love it and I love the fact that it sort of takes that kind of barely taped together kind of plot and makes it seem organic. I, I mean, the, there is great nostalgia attached to this book for me. I mean, like, like you, you know, I think we were talking about this on Twitter earlier today. Like, you look at the cover, it's, it like, I came to Doctor Who fandom in, in 1984, and, and by this point, this book had been out for a couple of years, but, you know, I remember coming to this book and several other Peter Davison photo covers all at once, and it's like, oh my God, this is Doctor Who in the future. This is, this isn't just, you know, all the Tom Baker era and, you know, the 70s targets, which are all painted covers and kind of, you know, all the Patrick Troughton ones have all scenes that don't involve Patrick Troughton, and and they're all like, like random figure on the cover of Enemy of the World. Why can't we, you know, you know? So like like it's all that kind of thing, and that. But here you suddenly get the photo covers, and I love the photo covers, and I love the star field, that, which, as you pointed out, is very much like the actual you know title sequence, and it just feels. Like Doctor Who is new, and I, I love that element of it. And the thing that gives me the weirdest nostalgia about Castro Velva is, is the font. It, it's a, it's this weird, um, it's this weird serif font that's 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 very modern looking. And it, it's 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 it, whenever I look at it, the font alone of Castro Velva, I get I get I get chills and nostalgia. But no, overall, it's just it's just a, a delight. And rereading the book for this, I was just I was just struck at how organic it all seemed. Like I was just amazed at how like it's so much more satisfying as a book to me uh, than than as a TV show. There is an epitaph worthy quote on just about every page of this book. And yes, <laughs> in the, a great way of putting it. In the other half of the show, after you leave us, when I do my audio essay on the text, I'm going to not quite like what I did for the Logopolis episode where I did my top 12 lines, but I'm going to read I'm going to read out my favorite lines in the other half of the show. 
and you've read out two incredible passages. Those didn't even crack my top ten. There's just so much other great <laughs> stuff. So I am going to do now for you probably my all-time favorite passage in any of the many sure. Doctor Who books that have come out between the 1960s and today. So this is page 92, and I don't have quite your uh, mellifluous reading voice or we had – Conrad Westmus, a legitimate big finish actor, last week doing a, doing a four-page <laughs> reading out of Meglos. I, I don't have anything on you guys, but I'll, I'll do my best in my uh, in my scratchy voice that makes Ben Shapiro's voice uh, sound like a basso profundo. Uh, minus five for the Ben Shapiro reference. My kid is scowling at me from across the table. In the nearly 800 years of his being, much of that time spent in travel, the doctor had arrived at the working hypothesis that experience is no substitute for books. And that, by the way, that is it. That is the line. Experience is no substitute for books. That is my that is my mantra. That is my credo. That is, you know, I'll put that on my uh, gravestone epitaph at some point. That is, that is it. But I'll, I'll keep going. Experience is no substitute for books. He had a healthy respect for anything his fellow creatures felt was worth committing to print, although the profuseness of their publications often made him wish that reading could be got through more quickly and writing made less easy, perhaps with a universal rule that all books be hand-carved in granite with a pin. <laughs> and this is not just flowery prose. This leads up to the important plot point that really unravels the mystery. The books are old. Yeah. The books are 1,200 years old, but they chronicle the rise of Castrovalva up to the present day, which is one of my favorite revelations ever. Yeah, it's so funny because I got it because because I'm just I'm just thick enough that I didn't really get the nuance of it on the TV version. But in the book, I really got it. It was like, oh, 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 that's what it means. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I think there's a certain immediacy to to, to how to how Bidmean kind of situates you in the, in the, in the text that really makes it really makes it kind of at home as a as a revelation. Most of the revelations of that book kind of have that way. And you and I had talked about this on Reality Bomb three and a half years ago when I did a, a brief appearance on the show after Terrence Dix passed away and you did a Terrence tribute episode. You would ask me what was Terrence's greatest contribution to the worlds of Doctor Who, and I had mentioned that, according to Christopher H. Bidmead, Doctor Who's most important special effect was words. Mm-hmm. And that certainly comes through because the TV dialogue is sparkling. I think I'm a much bigger fan of the TV serial than you are, but there's just sparkling dialogue all over the place. And there is. There is. I the book takes all that sparkling dialogue and surrounds it by sparkling prose. So we could read from this thing all day, and I think we have, but yeah. <laughs> so much else to discuss. So you brought up a lot of points earlier, so I'll just backtrack through those in reverse order. So I'll give credit. It was John Arnold who made the comment about you look at the cover of this book and it's basically the opening titles. It's Peter Davis and yeah. the Starfield to which my contribution was there's a meme going around and you've probably seen it on Facebook. You're about you're on Facebook about as much as I am. There's the meme yeah. of tell a child of the 70s that you can't hear a photograph. And then there's a picture of the three TIE fighters doing the trench run in, in the original <laughs> Star Wars. And you can hear the sound effect of the TIE fighters speeding down the Death Star Trench. When I look at this cover photo, I can hear yeah. Peter Howell's hear, music. Yeah, you can hear that. Yeah, yeah, I can too. I can too. I, I love that. Uh, it's my favorite version of the theme song. And, and it's so, it's, 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 it's like that period of time when 
I, I became a fan very late, very late, you know, later than many kids in Britain, obviously. And, but, but I made up for it by sort of mainlining 70s Who on PBS every day. But, you know, Doctor Who on the weekends was, was this. It was the Peter Howell theme, and it was, and it was Peter Davison, and then, and then eventually Colin Baker. And, it was, and it, was, it was always kind of special. Doctor Who, weekend Doctor Who was special Doctor Who. That you only got a couple of times a year, and 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 whereas you know daily Doctor Who was kind of old Doctor Who, and I and I just I was always just enamored with that kind of wonderful newness of that era of Doctor Who, and 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 they were like this is so new we're just photographing the Doctor, and you know we don't have to know that you know his his agent had a had a, had an issue with uh, had an issue with Davison's likeness blah 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 it's you know you don't need to know that it just it just seems so new. That we actually have Davison, a photo of Davison on the cover. Yeah, even though it is a photo that, as Dan Blythe once said, looks like a guy that's had one too many wedding photos. <laughs> uh. No, this, but, was, you know, this was important. This was important for me because I was the kind of kid who would bring books to family outings in New York City to read in between courses at a restaurant. But my mother's older sister, my Aunt Rachel, was a huge fan of all creatures great and small. She was a true Anglophile. So when she saw Tristan on the cover of the book that I was reading at a fancy restaurant, possibly the Russian Tea Room, she squealed with delight. <laughs> so it was a way of bridging the gap between stuffy family members in their mid to late 40s who'd never heard of Doctor Who. Now that is an image. You and the Russian Tea Room read read. <laughs> I was also just struck with the revelation that when she made that connection, Aunt Rachel was younger than I am now. And that's a pretty horrifying thought because she passed away like eight years ago. Oh, my God. That's so so brilliant. I love that's all right. I I love uh, it's funny because I love the many people don't like the photo covers. I love the photo covers and the photo covers uh, I particularly love because the early 1980s was the to have all these, you know, really well painted painted things by Prisicula Austin and all the way through to Skeletor and Pearson. Like that was that was that was not the norm, you know. The norm was the cover of Castrovalva. It was a you know a cut and pasted photograph against the, against a generic Starfield, and and that that was kind of the cover of the novelization of Castrovalva or the cover of the nas- novelization of Auto Man. It's hard to say. Like you know what could have been a I don't even know if there was an Auto Man novelization, but I'm fairly sure there was. I'm going to well, look it up now. There were novelizations for Knight Rider and Manimal in the, in the, in the mid-80s on the U.S. TV scene. So, yes, photo covers yeah. were the norm. Star Trek was doing those photo novels. You could buy The Wrath of Khan with just photographs from the movie and speech bubbles put over the photographs. Oh, yeah, they were from Eddie. Yeah, I remember those. Very, uh, very funny. You and I are both members of the Target Facebook group, and I would say that 85% of that group is devoted to discussion of the covers rather than what's underneath them. Again, I yeah. thought I would be able to safely say last week that Megalos is not a highly ranked story, and I took a lot of grief for it, but I'll, I'll make the same bold statement here. A lot of people don't like the photo covers. I'm glad that you got to that first by saying you like them, because I'll make another point. I bought all my targets for the most part in 1985 and 1986, so I was not getting any first editions, okay? I wasn't buying these books in 1980. I wasn't buying them as they came out. I was buying them after they were already several years old. So I have the advantage of having third, fourth, fifth, sixth editions. I can see that this book 
is a target published in 1983. I have the yep. third printing in 1984, and it's yep. the middle of 1984 because late 84 is when Target switches from the bullseye logo to that awful monochrome logo. This is still the colorful, right. which our yep. mutual friend Jim Sangster incorporated into my show logo with the exact same color scheme. Aww. Jim, of course, is now a permanent producer on this show, so I'll make sure to tell him that you said hello earlier. Yes, please do, please do. Oh, by the way, I, 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 in the interim, I just looked up the cover to the Ottoman novelization, which indeed has a photo. Um, so, oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> so the point that I'm trying to make is that these books with Davison on the cover are flying off the shelves like proverbial hotcakes, okay. because a few okay. months ago we did on this show Monster of Peladon, which came out in 1980. The second printing is 1984. Nobody bought Monster of Peladon, even though it's an incredible cover painting by Steve Kite. At that point, nobody cared. Phantom had moved on from the Peladon saga. Yeah. Doctor Who and the Visitation. And the Visitation is a good story. It's probably about on par with, um, yeah. with uh, you know, the, the, the Peladon stories. You know, looks sort of like a second phalanx of Doctor Who greatness. Not an all-time classic, but just a really good story. Novelization of Visitation goes through more printings in 18 months than Monster of Peladon goes through in the photo cover is yeah. grabbing people. Yeah, it is. It is. And that period is basically the start of, of I would say, the the real golden age of the, of the Target novels is, is when they were the most read was that period sort of between 1983 and I'd say ooh, 1987. Like pretty much though that four year stretch is is like is like the pinnacle of the target novels that is when they go through the most number of printings that's when they that's when the, that's when you know they get they get you know decent distribution in the u.s through lyle stewart you know they they, they it really kind of blossoms in that period and, and they start really pushing the older novelize the older doctor novelizations in a way that they quite hadn't before like they suddenly realized to like push out the ones with the monsters in it we could like push out the highlanders or marco polo or something like that and people will go for it um so yeah uh, it had a it had a huge effect i think on on uh, on that period and i think it was a sort of the tipping point was was those photo covers and the fact that doctor who is now being marketed in the states the novelizations first come here in 83 i started buying them in january 85 I'm telling you as a witness, and this is a true story from nearly 40 years ago, so hold on to your socks, kids. I would go to my Wallen Books in Hicksville, New York. Yes, Hicksville is an actual place name on Long Island, named for the uh, director of the Long Island Railroad in the 19th century, Valentine Hicks. There really is a place called Hicksville, but there was this huge shopping mall, and it's actually still there as far as I know. Uh, the Broadway Mall it used to be called the Mid-Island Plaza. And in the Wallen books there, I would go every two weeks, every other Saturday to get my babysitting allowance, two books every two weeks. And if I babysat my kid sister on a Saturday night, I would get three books every two weeks. I would stand there in front of the shelves with my head cocked to the side, reading the spines every two weeks, trying to figure out which books I was going to buy. Every two weeks, the inventory had completely turned over. So I was not the only person on Long Island in the mid-80s buying Doctor Who novelizations. If you go to a bookstore now, you might go to a store two weeks later, and it's the exact same lineup on, on the shelves. But with those Doctor Who books, 70% yeah. of the titles on January 1st were not going to be there anymore on January 15th, and it was going to be a whole new inventory, two full shelves worth. It was a glorious time to be alive. And the first thing I do when yeah. I get a time machine is I'm going to go back in time yeah. and just take a photo on my cell phone camera every two weeks of how much the shelves turned over. 
And people are going to say, sir, what is that in your hands? Are you a spy? Yes. Why are you taking pictures of children? Like, you know, that, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah they, I mean, for me, I, I have a, I have a memory, although I will not stalk my past, my past self uh, is is um, is Target, not Target Comics. Actually, ironically, it was called Target Comics. And it was a comic book store up in Oakville. And they stocked Doctor Who books. Like, And that's actually where I got my copy of Castor Valva. It's where I got my copy of Frontios. I think I got my copy of the two Doctors there. Um, I got a bunch of a bunch of, a bunch of, of sort of great novelizations there. And then there was another store. Uh, it was W.H. Smith, actually, in, 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 in my local mall, Oakville Place. I grew up in a place called Oakville, Ontario. And... Uh, and you know, I, I, Rob and I, you know, would buy novelizations in various places, and then we'd trade with each other to go read them. So, like, and I, I remember his birthday. It's, no, it was Christmas. It was Christmas, 1984. I bought him at W.H. Smith. I bought him Marco Polo and the Aztecs, and then I borrowed both of those off of him to go read, read his copies. <laughs> and he borrowed off of me my copy of of Enemy of the World, I think, um, and, and something else I bought. But yeah, we we were we were constantly like swapping swapping uh, Doctor Who books uh, that we bought, and they're almost always neon tube. Is that kind of that beginning of that real golden age of the Doctor Who novelization? Yeah, I've touched on this point as well. Castro Valva is the first of ten consecutive. Peter Davison novelizations. So this comes out in June 1983, right yeah. after Return of the Jedi hit theaters in the U.S. Wow. So for the next 10 months, and that's a little more than 12 months a year of real calendar time. So from mid-84, check that, through yeah. from mid-83 through mid-84, all you're getting are Peter Davison novelizations. Yeah. So that's books 76, 76 through 85, starting with book 86, which is a less than beloved season six Patrick Patrick Troughton story made in season five, but mm-hmm. aired as the season six premiere, much to the delight of very few people. That is an incredible novelization, not to spoil what's going to be discussed on this show when that book comes up, but all of a sudden, like you say, you're getting novelizations of these lesser remembered black and white stories from yeah. the 60s between the Highlanders and the Dominators and the Aztecs, many other books in that era. Uh, the books are terrific. And those were the books that were new as I was becoming a fan. So yeah, Walden books used to have, and again, Walden books is now defunct. I think they were purchased by B. Dalton and then went out of business entirely. Yeah. But they used to have an actual newsletter and they had a sci-fi club and I forget the name of the club now, but I had, a color it was a business card with a color emblem on it as part of the Walden Book Science Fiction Club and there was a newsletter and they would you know every month they would you know highlight 20 new books sci-fi books that you could buy at Walden Books uh, so I think Samuel R. Delaney's Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand was on the cover of the very first Walden Books sci-fi newsletter that I got Roger Zelazny was also featured in there and then they would always review the latest Doctor Who novelization as well. So they reviewed Marco Polo. They reviewed the Highlanders. And I'll never forget the reviewer from Walden Books. And Walden Books actually had somebody on the payroll to review Doctor Who novelizations. That's how heady a time was, 1985 yeah. was, for mass market science fiction. The reviewer actually described the, the novelization of Marco Polo as, quote, a taut 144 pages. I have never forgotten that expression. 
<laughs> That's such a brilliant way of putting it. It's funny because I remember the very first issue of Doctor Who magazine I ever, I ever, I ever read. I did a Reality Bomb editorial about it, like, I guess, last November. It was the issue, well, it was the first issue with Colin Baker in costume on the cover. So, and, you know, they'd already done the Colin Baker is the Doctor cover. So they, it was called The New Doctor. And it was a picture of Colin Baker in costume with Perry and just smiling at camera. And I was so excited because it, this was Doctor Who of the future. This is Doctor Who of a future that hadn't even arrived in North America. I, I was wanting to be a part of it. And inside that issue, they actually review Jerry Davis's novelization of the Highlanders. And I wanted this book. I coveted this book. I had to read this book. It was, it was, a, it was an adaptation of the last historical. It was out. I was a huge we're hugely big on Culloden, the 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 docudrama that that was sort of very much the historical reenactments, and it was it was cut, quite cutting edge for for 1964 when it was made. And so they had uh, they had uh, I think 64. Anyways, uh, don't don't at me, folks. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, I was I was a big I was a big because Culloden really made a huge impression on me when I was 12 when I saw it. I was really into the Battle of Culloden, and I also want, and it was a Doctor Who novelization that, you know, from the future that I wanted to see, and I remember I got to get this book, and I want to say I got it in December of 84, or may have been 80, early 85, I, I got it in Toronto, because in Toronto there was a, there was a comic book store called The Silver Snail, and there was a, and then right across seller called Baca, and that was kind of, and Baca still exists, and so The Silver Snail, although they're no longer across the street from each other. But I, I say this because I, I I went I went to Baca I think and I got it and I got it there. It had just managed to somehow come from from Britain. I think they they directly imported it. And I was like, I have to have this. This is my book from the future. And I remember being terribly bored by it. But it's a but it, it isn't it, it's an okay novelization. It's a much better novelization when you're older. Um, but I have to say I, I found it terribly tedious as a 15 year old. But I love, but but it was, but I remember that excitement of you know reading all these novel. The uh, McCoy ones really had that kind of legendary status for me. And I eventually, once we you know get to that era of the Target novel, I, I hope to be on your podcast again so I can talk about this because because there it was during a period when there had been a massive dry spell. They stopped selling the novels in North America for a while. They lost a distributor, which was, which is to the detriment of the series. And, and all of a sudden one day it just suddenly plonk, it, it, it came back. It was like, Oh my God, like, you know, the ghost light novelization just suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And you're kind of like, going, Oh my God. And I remember that kind of moment of, and, but I'd read the, the reviews of the novelizations of ghost light. And that was a long answer. And I don't even know if it made any sense, but there you go. <laughs> We'll figure that out in post-production, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have first acquired Highlanders probably in late 85, because I distinctly recall bringing it to junior high school, which I started in the fall of 85. And I didn't know, what is this word, G-A-O-L? And how do you pronounce it? Gaol? <laughs> Gaol. It took me a yep. while to realize Gaol. that was just the British spelling, the only British spelling of jail, which we spell J-A-I-L here in the States. I don't think I realized that until I was in my late teens and I'd finally read Oscar Wilde um, because I read The Ballad of Reading Gal. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, As a uh, former yeah. criminal defense attorney, I spent a lot of time in Gowl. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, no, I uh, I remember reading on a camping trip 
so I must have had gotten it in like early '85 because I remember re- I remember taking it on a camping trip uh, because I was in Boy Scouts and I was on a, I was on a camping trip with some friends and 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 I had you know this you know novel with a photo of, a, a soft focus photograph of Jamie on the cover and people were like wondering what the hell is this? But yeah, I mean. I didn't know anything about Culloden or Scottish independence or 1746 as a, you know, 11, 12 year old junior high school student. And I enjoyed the book for what it was. At that point, I loved every Doctor Who book, no matter what it was. Yeah. It wasn't until I picked that book up again after a long hiatus, probably in about 2011, when I was doing a out of order target pilgrimage, picking books yeah. in random order off of a random number generator. So I was reading oh, wow. them in jukebox format. And then I realized, wait a minute, the Highlanders book it's a location shift because part one takes place on the moors but then they shift to inverness which is an honest to god city and it's a whole different plot and a whole different set of characters and that i didn't realize that one of the tertiary bad guys in the highlanders later shows up as a quaternary bad guy in lawrence miles's alien bodies i didn't Ah. realize that until i read alien bodies a few years ago but there's the 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 highlanders novelization has terrific vocabulary you could pretty much navigate your way around scotland just using that book that I was oh, too young good. to appreciate it in '85, but I certainly get it now. I, I was much the same, and I was older than you then. A few years ago, actually, I was just random. I just randomly opened it up because I wanted to re-experience the nostalgia. I actually found it quite a good read. Actually, Jerry Davis's prose is very brisk and lovely. Actually, um, I felt like I did. I felt like 15-year-old me did him a disservice, but maybe I just maybe I. I think I think you know your expectations as a fan when you're. When you're 14, 15, and to a certain extent, you're reading it. You're reading it for. It's hard to explain. You're reading it for data points as much as anything else. You're reading right. it. I, I mean, I remember reading the Web of Fear novelization, and really, I was just there for the historic meeting of of the Brig saying this is as famous as you know as as livingston you know. <laughs> yes, you, know, yes. you know you know like i, I love that bit um because you know because but you know you're kind of reading it for data points you're reading it to sort of get the continuity and and sort of understand you know the feeling of of of, of what that story was like in a way that isn't quite as uh and that makes you know I remember being really frustrated by the massacre because it's nothing like the TV story, and yet it is actually a really great novel. But I just remember being so frustrated by it because the part of me that was reading it for the data point of you know I want to I want to understand you know what it was like to have the story. Like for me, my prototypical Doctor Who novelization in that kind of period, the 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 Galaxy Four one, which literally does the chapters as the episodes which i love by the way because the zarby the, the doctor who and the zarby did the same thing six episodes six chapters i always knew when to put the book down for the night exactly and I, I loved it for that and and i remember like it's so funny because i remember i liked um i i really liked uh i i remember i, I the novelization of the romans I, I i was it was i was just like what the hell is this when i was when i was at when i was at the age when it came out and and when I read it as an adult, I'm like, this is the best Doctor Who novel ever, um, Twin Dilemma 2. But, you know, nonetheless, I, I was uh, maybe even Percy Penrith. But, yeah, I was I was I was really just astounded by how great that was when you reread it, um, because because once you were kind of once you kind of got the data points from other things, you could suddenly appreciate what the hell they were doing and what some of these writers were doing, which was basically I don't want to have to go, you know, um, readapt this thing that's kind of dull 
um, that was the kind of adult period of my life. I'm going to have some fun with it, you know, and I'm more power to them. Um, oh, did you, Jason? Uh, speaking of the things, this is completely first page of actual novelization to uh, to, uh, to 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 the enemy of the world. I was going to bring that up earlier, but you've been going off on a 70-mile-an-hour tangent, and I'm walking at foot speed, so I'm several data points behind you in this conversation. I did fully mean to bring that up. Yes, Simon Gurrier earlier today, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, Simon Gurrier posted the first page – I think it's the only surviving page of David Whitaker's manuscript. And yeah, I I covered the Ian Martyr book on this show with our mutual friend Stacey Smith. We recorded our episode for Enemy of the World at Galley. Uh, Warren Fry makes a cameo appearance in that episode. Chris Chibnall was nearby, but unfortunately did not walk past us, so I couldn't snag him for an on-the-spot interview about Enemy of the World. But the Ian Martyr novelization of Enemy of the World is great. However, just that one page of David Whitaker, this is Doctor Who and the Crusaders, his previous novelization on steroids. It is Doctor Who as children's literature. It's a very specific way of talking to the audience and explaining explaining to them words as you go along. It's this incredible kind of writing style that I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore because, well, again, I haven't, I haven't no. read YA fiction in a long time, but it's just this elevated prose. And Ian Martyr was doing this as a James Bond novel with, um, you know, uh, profanities yeah. and stuff. But I think the fact that we don't have the other 119 pages of that Whitaker novelization is a tragedy because I would love to hear how he narrated some of those scenes in that very unique authorial voice that he had. God, like I, the opening line is literally the the chapter title is so brilliant. It's how the doctor went paddling and found himself in deep water. And yes, yes, <laughs> he was doing chapter subheadings, which nobody does anymore. Yeah, and I love uh, the TARDIS materialized cleverly on the upper ledge of a cave, hidden within the shadows. And I'm like, like, oh, that is such a brilliant first line. Like, it's, just, it's a very, it's a very just very crisp prose. It's very, very sort of. It's very, it's it is much more children's prose than 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 uh, and 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 Simon very helpfully like you know compares and contrasts with the you know actual first page by uh, by Ian Martyr, which is the hot January sun beat out the cloudless blue sky with a warm northeast wind that blew the coral sea, and it's like it's all action verbs about beating something. Um, so, you know. <laughs> Because it's Ian Martyr. Um, but no, <laughs> um, oh, there's a joke about the novelization of the rescue in there somewhere, but we'll get to that yeah, much later on. Yeah, exactly. It's a very, it's a very, you know, um, it, I, I was really kind of struck at how how really charming uh, David Whitaker's novelization, David Whitaker's version of the novelization is, whereas you know, it's a much, it's a much more fulsome thing under under Ian Martyr. And I like Ian Martyr's novelizations usually. I'm not as big on Enemy of the World as you or Stacy, but um, but uh, but I also you know, but I also got it when I had it like a, I I remember bought it like I bought it like in in, in November 1984, and I had a 103 degree fever, and oh. it was uh, it was it was we, we had a day off school, and and we and I had a day off school. With uh, with my friend Rob and his father, and his father was going to meet us in Toronto where he worked, and he was going to take us to the Silver Snail and, and Baca, and we were going to buy Doctor Who looks. And I was like, "There's no way I'm going to miss this, because even though I'm sick." I just kept on denying that I was sick the entire day, and I just got sicker and sicker. I got I had I had a massive fever by the time I got home, and but I had my copy of The Enemy of the World, and uh, I think it might, I think Rob bought Rob bought the Space War. Which uh, which uh, I think he got the better part of the deal because it had a cooler cover. Um, 
yeah, how old you are and how you felt when you first read a book definitely plays into it. I mean, just to jump yeah. back a bit about the massacre, again, and I want to explain to the kids, number one, that in the 1980s, you couldn't press the word on your Kindle touchscreen and have a de- and have the definition pop out at you, you know? Like, the first time I read The Highlanders, I didn't realize what a standard was. I thought they were talking about a contract. I didn't know that a standard was like an actual yeah. battle flag. And when I say I'm talking to the kids, I also want to point out, Graham, in case you didn't know it, that Spotify for podcasters gives me a breakdown of my audience by age, really? gender, and oh. geographic location. I'm going to tell you that 98% of my audience is 35 and up. So I, when I, I say was, I'm talking I, I, to the kids, they ain't listening. Yeah, I was like thinking, like, what fictitious hypothetical child is this? Because I can't imagine anyone listening to this podcast. I'm sorry. No offense, but yeah. But, <laughs> but I'm afraid statistics actually backs me off on this. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so the point is, when I first read The Massacre, probably in 86, 87, 88, then I was starting to acro Doctor Who by that point, although, of course, I obviously grew back into it. I didn't know about the history of The Massacre. I didn't know that John Lucarotti's script never made it to screen. I didn't know that Donald Tosh had rewritten it wholesale. Yeah. I didn't know that the novelization was nothing at all after chapter three, like what happened on television. I didn't have DWM at that point. All I knew was what I read in the books and what I read in Doctor Who was Celebration. Mm-hmm. So when I read The Massacre, I was just reading it as an actual novelization, which I didn't find out it wasn't until years later. And the fact in part one, chapter one, when the doctor is explaining to Stephen that he can navigate through time just based on what Notre Dame looks like at a certain year, that was mind-blowing. It was a terrific I thing. I know. I know. I had a similar thing happen to me with the novelization of... Oh, oh, that's, that, that's Fury from the Deep. You're talking about Fury from the Deep. Which, you'll remember, has on the cover a bumper edition of... Which is the yes, same. Yes, yes. Victor Henderson vastly overwrote this, and we couldn't be bothered to edit it because it was just too fiendishly good. So, <laughs> fine. Uh, um, you know, uh, because I, I didn't understand why it was called a bumper volume, but I, I, you know, all the parts of my head that's going, I want the data points, completely forgot about the fact that this is the first introduction of the sonic screwdriver and didn't bother to look for it because it wasn't there. And But it was so good. It was really, really vividly written and brilliant and i just didn't care like i like it i i was completely swept away from my usual kind of methodology of, of reading these things in some ways um or my my old my older my my younger self's version i guess and it was just like oh my god this is so this is so creepy and so cool and and to a certain extent watching the animated version and even watching what little fragments of that story that are left it's not nearly as uh it's not nearly as good as Victor Pemberton's prose on that, even though he doesn't really include the first appearance of the Sonic Screwdriver. So, go figure. And that's what's disappointing about the massacre, because as much as it blew my mind at age 13 and 14, that you could figure out the year just based on how a particular building looked. And that was decades before I made it to Notre Dame myself. I was there the summer before it caught fire. When I picked the massacre up as an adult, it is full of unreadable run-on sentences and it is not objectively a good book and we'll come to that later on on this show and that brings me back to the romans again you're going at 80 miles an hour and i'm limping along with bilateral calcaneal spurs um (laughs) i've only read the romans once okay i bought it in high school probably 88 whenever it came out i was in high school and I know that I bought it at B. Dalton across the mall corridor from Walden Books because it had that tritone beige and white and brown 
Barnes and Noble price sticker that they haven't probably made in, in 35 years. And I never peeled that sticker off the cover. I read the Romans once and it bore no resemblance at all to the TV story. And I was infuriated and I didn't get the humor and I didn't get most of the illusions because I was a sophomoric high school student in more yeah, ways than yeah. one. I was probably literally a sophomore at the time. I've only read the Romans that one time. I have not read it since. I've done several partial rereads of the target line. I've never gotten to the Romans, uh, but certainly not in publication order. It's not coming out for a while. So that Planet of Giants, uh, the Smugglers, the Rescue, there are some target books towards the end of the run that I've only read once and only once. So I'm very curious when I come back to the Romans how that holds up and whether or not I'll actually get it. Now that I have a few more years on the urometer and a few more uh, it's, it's streaks hard of gray, to say, it's hard. It's hard to say with you, Jason, because on the one hand, I think I think you know you're you're a more sophisticated person, and and and, and you'll appreciate it. On the other hand, you and I have vastly different senses of humor, and I just don't know if. <laughs> I just don't know if you'll like it. I, I have a suspicion that you're just, you know, based on the things I like and the things that you like uh, and the things that you don't like. I, I have to say, I read, I really, like, I remember I, I skimmed it and I was kind of like, eh, no, this is this is Doctor Who and the Daleks all over again. I don't like this. I, I don't want. I don't want this. You know, this. No, 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 no. This isn't me for me. And I remember rereading it. I, I think I when I was started collecting the novels. I started collecting novels in earnest in my mid thirties and uh, and uh, early to mid thirties. And I was just so kind of like, oh my. God, this is genius! Like it's so funny, and it's so like, and the and the uh, and the sort of epistolary nature of the novel is actually really well executed, and it's just like, it it's su such a sophisticated, uh, smart, and very very adult. I I want you to like this one desperately. I, I just don't think you will, but but please surprise me. But Therein hangs the tale because I was raised at a very specific cultural moment, at a very specific geographical and cultural intersection by a very specific single parent who had a very specific cultural <laughs> frame of reference. I was raised on the Borscht Belt. I was raised on the Marx Brothers. I was raised on Mel Brooks, but only the Mel Brooks that were appropriate for 11 and 12 year old. So I was seeing I was seeing to be or not to be Mel Brooks. I was not seeing Blazing Saddles Mel Brooks. Yeah, so I was, I was thinking that, yes. And I was taken to see Spaceballs in the theater in 1987 by my grandmother, who at the time was 74 years old and had grown up around the corner from both Danny Kaye and Isaac Asimov in East New York. So for my 74-year-old grandmother, Spaceballs was legitimately hilarious because she was a Mel Brooks person, even though she wasn't a sci-fi person this is the same grandmother who took me to see strange brew with bob and doug mckenzie and oh, on the wow. walk home from the movie theater we saw it at the kent and we walked all the way through midwood back to her home on ocean avenue she was explaining to me how the plot of strange brew was the same as the plot of hamlet and we got back to her <laughs> one bedroom apartment in which she lived for 60 years on ocean avenue and she read to me passages from hamlet from her late husband's 1910 bound copy of the book that is probably worth a million dollars now and no longer exists. So I was raised at this very specific moment, okay? So I was raised on Marx Brothers jokes. To this day, I cannot let a straight line go by without riffing on it because I was raised to believe that the Marx Brothers are normal. This is what everybody <laughs> does. I was taught to eat an ear of corn like Harpal Marx, like you're using a typewriter. And yeah, of course, yeah, typewriters yeah. no longer exist. So if I do that joke from my kitchen, he's going to go, what's a typewriter? And 
again, every straight line has to have a punchline that I supply as if I were Groucho Marx, and I'm, I'm not Groucho Marx. So oh. all this is a very long-winded and overly fast way of saying that the romance is a very different style of humor from a different generation and a different cultural moment in which I was not raised. That's true. In deference to my mother, after I went to bed, my mother would watch Monty Python and Are You Being Served, and she would laugh her head off because my mother was a huge Anglophile, was watching PBS right. all the time. I was watching Masterpiece Theater over her shoulder. I was watching Mystery yeah. over her shoulder. I was not allowed to watch Monty Python or Are You Being Served over her shoulder, so those are also cultural moments that I don't get. <laughs> my mother bridges the divide. I do not. So I'm not sure if the Romans is in a language that I speak, but We'll find out in about six or seven months. Find out. I mean, you know, uh, I, I I think it just kind of succinctly boils down to you're not you don't want to be a member of any club that would have you as a member. But that's just that's just you know. <laughs> but there you go. Here's my favorite Groucho <laughs> Marx story. Groucho Marx, when he's rich and famous and living in Hollywood and is married with two children, takes his daughter to the local country club and asks if he can join. And they say we don't allow Jewish people here. And he goes, well, my daughter's half Jewish. Can she go up to her waist? I don't know if it's still on YouTube. It was 10 years ago, but Groucho Marx actually did a live TV production of the Mikado for American audiences. It was an hour long. Wow. And he did, on a, on a talk show with his daughter, they did a duet of Beauty and the Bellow of the Blast. And I don't know if that's on YouTube, and if it is, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's one of the most sweetest things you will ever see. Middle-aged Groucho wow. Marx and his young daughter singing Gilbert and Sullivan on live television. That You would never see oh. that nowadays. Oh no! Oh hell no! We could we could very easily turn this into a Marx Brothers podcast because honestly I'm I'm a giant of the Marx Brothers myself actually. <laughs> well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so, uh, all right, uh, we are pretty much at the end of our hour, and since we are having the same audio glitches, we are not going to play a game because um, I was going to okay. play guess that cliffhanger with you. Okay. But with the audio glitch, it's just not going to work because we're not going to be on, on 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 the same sync. So we'll defer guess that cliffhanger to next time. You will be back in a few months. I can yeah, guarantee sure. you that. I already have your next two appearances booked. That's true. I am looking forward to them both. So I may have even hinted that, that earlier on in the show. So there you go. Yes, and you do have a second appearance coming up on a bonus episode, which I have not spoiled yet, but that will come when the time comes. Yeah. But. Let's just do one final riff on Castro Valva before we sign off. I vividly recall you writing on Records Doctor Who in the mid-90s that part two of Castro Valva suffers from being a commercial for the Zero Cabinet. Yes, it is. That's true. I, I stand by those words. I, for, I don't remember writing those words, but... but <laughs> me did. Um, you know, probably... I mean, who knows? I, I had no idea. I had, I did blackout postings to record Doctor Who when I was when I was in my mid twenties, but apparently I did. <laughs> well, somewhere on the Wayback Machine, that post exists. I um, believe it. I just happen to love Castor Valva because, and I'll get into this in the other half of the program when I do my audio essay because I've already written some of these same words. The mm. people of Castor Valva are invented by the master to trap the Doctor. And he comes up yes. with a very specific set. Chardavan is the decoy master. Murgrave is the kind, genial person to whom the doctor always gravitates. Gravitates, And Ruther is the stuffy, officious little man. 
and it just speaks a lot of the master that he would literally go to the trouble to create this person just to torment yeah, the doctor in bureaucratic red tape. And you have terrific actors like Michael Shear, you know, it's probably I don't want to say his best, but it's one of his top doctor who rolls out out of many. So I think the writing in Castro Valva is just so lyrical when it's there that the doctor yeah. interacting with these Castro Valvans is delicious. And then his interaction with the child and is saying, yes, well, that's democracy for you when everyone points in the wrong direction. It's just terrific stuff. And I think Patty Kingsland, you say it's held together by sellotape. I think Patty, Gingland, Patty Kingsland's score is the crazy glue that makes it all stick together because yeah. I could listen to that Castro Valva pastoral theme all day. And thanks oh, to the Jungian radio in my head, there are times when I am hearing it all day long <laughs> between my ears. It's funny because it's a story. It's a story that my uh, one of my very best friends, uh, Dennis, hates. He hates this story, and, and we and we once spent New Year's Eve, nineteen. I want to say nineteen. Yeah, it was New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety six. We were welcoming nineteen ninety six because it was because I went to Philadelphia two days later to discover that uh, Paul McGann was cast as the Doctor, and and we were literally arguing as the clock ticked down to midnight to, about about Castor Valva being a lame story and I my only defense to him was you like Babylon five, so you have no you actually have no taste and and <laughs> and this was literally our argument. Um I mean I, I'm so I mean I can see Castor Valva both ways. I, I I like your point about the uh, about the characters. The characters are lovely and it's got Michael Sheard and 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 he's and he's always great value and, and I love and I love I love Shardavan and I love I just love all that. I, I, I love, you know, you made us man of evil, but, you know, I, but we are free. I, I love all that stuff. I love uh, it is, a, is a, you know, the line, you know, the line better than me, Jason. It's a, you know, it's a variety way that it provides, provides a whole variety of equitable movement. I just, I just love that. I love that. I love that. You know, there are, as you have observed, steps that rise from the square and others that lead downwards from it, while other walks debouch laterally. An equitable arrangement, surely, allowing for much variety of movement. <laughs> Can you show me how how do you get here, 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 and here? Uh, it's it's genius. Um, it's it's. But I do think it's it's it. For me, I can sort of see my friend Dennis's point. The more I watch it, but and that's in the book, and it's 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 the version that is made up of of Crispy Lee's words, and and it's the it's it, you know I, it's funny because I'm. I'm not as enamored with season 18 as other people are, and I'm not as enamored with with Legopolis as other people are. But the but the book version of this really is just so wonderful, and and I think it's I think it's so much better than the television story it's a part of. And for me, it's one of the best kind of versions of Doctor Who as science fiction. Like it's a it's a legit science fiction novel that just happens to have Doctor Who in it, and and that's that's kind of. That's kind of the thing I like most about it. It functions as a science fiction novel, and I kind of, I kind of really respect the fact that Chris Bidme just went for it and just thought, well, why couldn't, why can't Doctor Who kind of function that way? That's what I like about uh, Stephen Gallagher's uh, Doctor Who novelizations for the same reason. Why I'm so excited about the expanded version of Warriors Gate coming out this summer is is that I love that kind of idea that Doctor Who can be anything it wants, and and why can't it be a fully functioning science fiction novel? Well, I was going to fire you from the show for criticizing Legopolis, which is my all-time favorite, but since we're almost at the end of the hour, your time is mercifully up. But I want to go back and do one last thing, because you 
earlier delivered what is possibly the worst pun in the history of this program. And that is a difficult crown to claim because I'm making terrible puns week in and week out for a year and a half now. Um, You're like, you're like amazingly competitive at this. So I'm curious to know how I managed to do that. You were talking about how the mid 1980s were the pinnacle of target books, but that was when (laughs) pinnacle books was doing literally a new printing of 10 different novelizations every year for a decade. Between 1979 and 1989, Pinnacle Books published 10 Doctor Who novelizations in the U.S., the target text, but updated for American spelling and punctuation. And each book went through 10 printings, one a year, and they put a different color logo on the cover to tell you which printing you had. So it wasn't just targets. It was also Pinnacles flooding the U.S. market. And when you say the 80s were the pinnacle of the novelization's popularity, you were – to quote Tom Baker in the Seeds of Doom, choosing your words with precision. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's. It, I mean, it's. I, I, I still to this day, uh, one of my great regrets is that I would, did not convince uh, the publisher of some very, very popular uh, books about Doctor Who that were published in the Wilderness years. I, I tried mightily to convince him to find the money to get Harlan Ellison to go write a. Uh, write another essay about Doctor Who that sort of was like a sequel to the essay that he wrote for the start of the Pinnacle books. And uh, I was like, it will be brilliant. He said, it's Harlan Ellison. He's going to require me to pull up in a bank truck. <laughs> and I don't have a bank truck to offer. I'm like going, can't you just mortgage your house or something? Like, he, people will buy it for the Harlan Ellison. I could not make the argument. It, 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 so in fairness to my publisher, he it, he was right. It would have bankrupted them. But it would have been worth it, in my view. Um, I, I, I still, to this day, am so disappointed we never got kind of like that sequel thing where, you know, because I, I, I remember that essay vividly, that sort of, you know, I remember being in Michael Moorcock's house and he just said, sit down and just watch. And I'm just like, like there, there is there. There was an essay to be made when Harlan was still alive and had a sense of humor to go read it <laughs> about how to write a Harlan Ellison, how to write a Harlan Ellison introduction where you, you know, you have to like talk nostalgically about your childhood. You have to like compare it to like Superman, Buck Rogers or something else. And then you have to have a, a, a passage where you're arguing with fans about something. And for me, the pinnacle of this, ha ha ha, is indeed Ugh. his pinnacle books introduction, which is the which is a terrible version of that pun. But nonetheless, well, I do I do think it's I do think it's superior. This is an excellent segue. You're my best publicist because my guest next week was Harlan Ellison's last editor. My guest oh, wow. next week has shown me the original draft of Harlan. Harlan Ellison's introduction to the Pinnacle books, which contains a dig at 1970s right-wing gadfly Anita Bryant, which was edited out by the publisher oh. of the Pinnacle books because you are not criticizing yeah. Anita Bryant in a line that specialized in right-wing <laughs> U.S. military fiction as well as the Doctor Who novelizations. I could see that. Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. That's but, a shame. He uh, was. He. Was, I love that about Colin. I, I interviewed Jason Davis for my bonus episode, recorded it at Galley, and uh, we talked about the Harlan Ellison introduction and how it came to be. I'll be doing the full version of that interview next week for the novelization of Ford of Doomsday. So half of that interview is a rerun of uh, Jason Davis talking about the Harlan Ellison introduction, and the other half is Jason Davis talking about next week's book, which is not nearly as well written as anything by Harlan Ellison. But if you have, ha- if you have not heard, heard that already, Graham, you were going to enjoy oh, the heck out of that. I, I really am. I really am. I'm looking forward to the first-hand stories about Harlan. Oh, that's great. That's great.
All right, Grant, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And next week, I'm going to ch- next time you're on, I'm going to challenge you to a game of Guess That Cliffhanger because I'm very curious to see how you will do. I will do badly, but thank you for thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to I'm going to get myself into the practice. Have a great night. Thanks so much. Doctor Who, Castrovalva, by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised as Castrovalva, teleplay by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised in January 1982, paperback release date June 16, 1983, target book number 76. Still weak and confused after his fourth regeneration, the Doctor retreats to Castrovalva to recuperate. But Castrovalva is not the haven of peace and tranquility the Doctor and his companions are seeking. Far from being able to rest quietly, the unsuspecting time travelers are caught up once again in the evil machinations of the Master. Only an act of supreme self-sacrifice will enable them to escape the maniacal lunacy of the renegade Time Lord. Two comments about that back cover blurb. Number one, thanks to Chris Chibnall, that is no longer the Doctor's fourth regeneration. Chris, I am expecting a revised copy of the back cover blurb. And second of all, that blurb pretty much spoils Castrovalva up until about the last ten minutes of part four, so thank you, Target copy editors. Paperback release date, June 1983. June 1983 was a seminal month in my life. It was the last day of the school year, which for us ended in late June. Return of the Jedi, what the kids now call Episode 6, but it was just plain old Return of the Jedi back then. Same way that what y'all now call A New Hope or Episode 4 was only ever just Star Wars to us. Return of the Jedi had been out in theaters in the States for about a month, and I still hadn't seen it. My parents had no motivation to take me, I guess. My school classmate, Neil, at the time a Star Wars obsessive who claimed to watch Star Wars every single day after school, thanks to what was then the electronic miracle of the video cassette recorder, had already seen Return like six times, and had the comic book adaptation. We weren't calling them graphic novels yet in 1983, at least not in the superhero sector. I knew every beat of the movie already, but of course hadn't seen it, so Neil took pity on me. And we went together on the last day of the school year, a half day. Now, I had a little league game to play in between dismissal at 11.50 and the movie showing. So a half day of school, little league baseball. I played right field, although my father more correctly characterized my role on the team as left out. And our team was sponsored by a local independent pizzeria. Though our team was so bad, it might as well have been sponsored by Chico's Bail Bonds. Now, for those of you in the UK who've never seen the original Bad News Bears, it was a rite of passage for any American child or teen in the 1970s, basically an art house movie about a youth baseball team full of misfits, Walter Matthau giving a surprisingly nuanced performance as a reformed alcoholic slob turned head coach, and many of the child actors went on to greatness, most notably Jackie Earl Haley as the team's resident cigarette-smoking motorcycle-riding, 13-year-old juvenile delinquent. Great movie. But yes, my Little League Baseball team was sponsored by a local pizzeria, not a bail bondsman.
the big national chains like Pizza Hut had real trouble getting market share in our New York City suburb, with about half of our subdivision made up of the children and grandchildren of Italian immigrants. So, after the school day, and after the game, our team was grounded to a fine paste by a rival team sponsored by a local hardware store. Neil and I went to go see Return of the Jedi. Now again, I knew the movie by heart, but it was still an epic adventure. And I get to see it in the theater several more times before the end of 1983. This is back in the days when a movie would spend eight months in the theater. One of the best days of my life up till that point. A half day of school, the last day of school, getting to play in a baseball game, going to see Star Wars. The night was June 1983. All this is about 18 months before I discovered Doctor Who and before I belatedly acquired this book in late 1985 in what is its third printing. Now, if I'd been given this book in June 1983 as a last day of school present, that would have made that day even better. And again, that day was already hard to top. Neil is doing pretty well, though I haven't seen him in decades. I understand he's now an attorney a few towns over from where I grew up, but the New York State legal profession is so vast and complicated and sometimes possible things just don't happen, so we've never crossed paths professionally. I do wonder if he's still a big Star Wars fan 40 years later. Now, of course, when I did discover Doctor Who, that rapidly put Star Wars into the rearview mirror. And Star Wars never really has regained first place in my affections. Castor Valva, for example, contains in print one of the all-time great sentences, you heard me talk about it with Graham earlier. Now, if you're talking about a movie series that contains a line of dialogue like, why don't you hold me like you did by the lake on Naboo? That's never going to top Castor Valva. That's never going to top Doctor Who. I'll read that line again. In the nearly 800 years of his being, much of that time spent to travel, the doctor had arrived at the working hypothesis that experience is no substitute for books. Has there ever been a sentence in any Doctor Who book which more closely summarizes my worldview? What I'm tempted to do is video myself reading that line and putting it up on the TikTok with Patty Kingsland's Castor Valva Pastor Alfheim playing behind me. I can't imagine that would get many upvotes, however. Chris Bidmead, El Bid, as he styled himself on Records Doctor Who in the early 90s, novelized each of his three Doctor Who scripts. Castor Valva is the second. We've already covered Legopolis back on episode 72 of this program. Now, from a distance, these books are merely straight adaptations. El Bid would add a few words of dialogue exchanges in the print version, and occasionally will puff out a walk-on role like his naming two side characters in Frontios, Kernigan and Ritchie, of C programming fame. But what you don't do is go to Bidmead novelizations to find new scenes, or restructured cliffhangers, or experimental writing, or additional mythology that couldn't have been presented on television. However, Bidmead's novelizations, especially Legopolis and Castor Valva, are among my favorites from the entire Target run. Castor Valva the book is a straight-up scene-by-scene retelling of the TV production, yes, and at 118 pages in length, being one of the rare target books that starts on page 1 rather than page 7, it is practically Terence-sized, 
But instead of adding new scenes or narrative tricks, what Bidmead adds is wit and a literary sensibility. One of my favorite flourishes is a chapter title called The World Through the Eyes of Shardavan, one of the few chapter titles in the target line that sounds like a one-man off-Broadway play staged by any British actor with a mane of white hair and an OBE after his name. Bidmead digs deep inside the head of the Fifth Doctor. This was the third Davison story to be novelized, which is not bad as it was his only fourth TV production. But as an adaptation of his debut serial, the book does better than its print predecessors in describing his essence. The very first description of Davison's body, offered in the book, cements the notion that he was playing the doctor as an old man in a young man's body. Quote, the body was stooped like an old man, but the face under the mop of blonde hair was the face of youth, with an open smile and an expression of complete bewilderment in his eyes. Later, as a not-quite-regenerated doctor is slumped over in a wheelchair, somewhere in that heap of crumpled flannel were worlds of wisdom. When looking for new clothes, the doctor reflects, the coat was not altogether right for him, but then he had to admit that he wasn't altogether right for the coat, either. He was on the point of arriving at the decision that they would give each other a try, at least for the moment. While lost in the TARDIS, and failing to recognize Tegan and Nyssa, Instead, examining a stain on the TARDIS wall, we get, Hello, said the doctor, greeting the thin, uneven red line with a courtesy he had denied the girls. We're told of the doctor, when a rescue needs to be organized, that, quote, Improvise would be a better expression, where the doctor was concerned. When the doctor has trouble counting to three late in the story, Bidmead shows him as, quote, Intending to put up with no more of this nonsense from a mere string of cardinal numbers and then confused, quote, stared with the distant gaze of a man watching his departing train of thought from an empty platform. If you don't think those lines rank among the most note-perfect descriptions of the Doctor's essence, then we probably read different books. It has been said, perhaps not unfairly, and I think Graham brought this up earlier, that Bidmead and Legopolis and Castrovalva was not exactly concerned with plot with the first 40 minutes or so of each, if you're watching in movie format, which you should never ever do, spent meandering around the TARDIS and circles. Neither story gets to its titled planet until late in Part 2, and begins the process of destroying that planet late in Part 3, killing off most of the guest cast in a blind rush in the process. The novelization, of course, is not a vehicle to correct these flaws, if they're flaws, as a scene-by-scene -scene retelling, there's just as much TARDIS exploration and traipsing through the Castrovalvin wilderness. But the book adds terrific flavor to these events, however banal you might think they are on television, as they're unfolding at their own leisurely pace. To be honest, though, I'm convinced that Bidmead could have novelized the phone book and still made it a triumphal saga of the immortal human soul. When Tegan decides that she can pilot the TARDIS herself, we found the data bank. We can learn to fly the machine. The TARDIS seemed to have taken note of her bravura, because at that moment it gave another enormous lurch. As things start to heat up as the TARDIS approaches event one, quote, the console room was like a Turkish bath in which someone was trying to light a bonfire. Now, that's actually not a very good line, but hey, even gods have off days. Later, the planet of Castrovalva, as seen from space, resembles, quote, a mossy tennis ball. 
And that's before we even exit the TARDIS for the first time. I know, I know that is not the most dialogue intense scene, but again, I think that Patty Kingsley's music is just about as good as the words in the story, and those are some pretty darn good words. The native cast Revalvans, when they finally show up in part three, are given as much dignity as you can ever give characters who were invented out of whole cloth by the master, and Bidme describes them in photorealistic accord with the actors who played them. Quote, the warrior called Ruther had by now removed his own mask to reveal the mild myopic expression of a man who might be a bank clerk. I absolutely love, love Frank Wiley's TV performance, and, as I told Graham earlier in defending this story, I love the notion that the master, when populating that planet, decided that it needed, no demanded, a stuffy, officious little man who tells visitors how they must or must not behave. A lovely little grace note, one which makes Castor Valva, as a planet, so much more real than other one-dimensional Doctor Who locales like Dulcus, or Carful, or Lacertia. Chardavan says the words, alas no, in a quote, sardonic tone that conveyed no particular trace of regret, close quote. And that's Derek Waring to a T, playing a decoy master, the guy you think is going to be the bad guy. But when he proves to be the singular hero of the piece in part four, I still stand up and cheer. Well, at least in my head. And when Murgrave, played by Michael Sheard, an actor who expressed befuddlement better than any thespian has before or since, struggles to absorb the doctor's lesson on recursive occlusion, Bidmead writes, quote, It was hard to tell whether he was merely eager to be polite. I love Castro Valva on TV. I may have said this before. I love the way the plot unfolds, literally, with its M.C. Escher-inspired images. And I also love Bidmead's preface. Quote, This book is dedicated to M.C. Escher, whose drawings inspired it and provided its title. Thanks are also due to the Barbican Center, London, England, where a working model of the disorienteering experiments provided valuable practical experience. Okay, that's hilarious. Now, bearing in mind, I am reading this in the mid-1980s as a tween. Had never been to London. Didn't know what the Barbican Center was. I assumed that it was a scientific research development project where scientists were actually working on quote-unquote disorienteering experiments. I did not realize that this is a very sarcastic way of saying the building has a very confusing architectural layout and bid me just got lost. Probably the funniest dedication in a Target book up to this point in the line 
which isn't saying much because there haven't been too many dedications, but this one is an absolute great one. I also love how the characters each speak in their own unique language. Even characters like Ruther who get precious little screen time. And yes, I'm still angry about that 40 years later. I will still hum or whistle Patty Kingsland's score at odd moments. But the novelization, separate and apart from the TV production, adds witty, insightful, and philosophical prose in a way that few target authors ever achieved. It's one of my favorites, and if all the quotes that I mentioned above haven't convinced you, well again, I guess you and I were reading different books. And let's play one last time one of my favorite all-time Doctor Who dialogue exchanges from Part 4. This library of Shardavans, are all the books like this? Yes. Why? These volumes chronicle the rise of Castrovalbrat of an alliance of warring hunters 1,200 years ago. Or purport to chronicle. Purport, you say? That, sir, is our official history. From Castrovalva's first beginnings to the present day. Yes, well, I'm no expert, but I have the strongest possible hunch that these are forgeries. What do you say, sir? Oh, the, the, the threads, the bindings, the paper, as near the real thing as may be, but the contents are faked. How can you tell? There is something we're all overlooking. Yes? What, Doctor? I don't know. I'm overlooking it, too. But I'm certain the whole history's been invented. By Shardavan? But why? To hide something? Something about the real history? Doctor? If there ever was a real history... Explain yourself, sir. You're the only man here who could not be persuaded to join the hunting ritual. Ah, my natural indolence would not permit it. Your intelligence would not permit it. You suspected the whole tradition was invention from beginning to end, and here's the proof. Your annotations of the histories. Ah, mere fancy, sir. Notes for a fiction I had a mind to write. Hmm. The fiction of Castrovalva. A civilization evolving out of tribal warfare into an ideal community. It is a fiction. And the thing that confirms it... Well, sir. Oh, I know it. It's on the tip... It's on the tip of my mind. The books are 500 years old at least, but... The books are old. But they chronicle the rise of Castrovalva up to the present day. That gives me chills every time every single time. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we go in chronological order from the first televised Peter Davison adventure to the second televised Peter Davison adventure, which happens to have been his first in-studio production. I'm being rejoined next week by my friend Jason Davis, author, book editor, generally great guy all around, he and I spoke at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles back in February. You've already heard a portion of that interview on this program during the bonus episode in between the 1981 and the 1982 novelizations, and I described it for Graham earlier. I suspect Graham didn't hear that episode. Anyway, I'll be playing that portion again where Jason talks about his work with Harlan Ellison and how Harlan Ellison's Doctor Who essay, as the preface to the U.S. Pinnacle reprints came to be, and I will also play for the first time the rest of that conversation as we stood in a crowded hallway at Gallifrey One and waxed rhapsodic about Doctor Who 4 to Doomsday. That's next week. Thank you for joining me 
on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Graham Burke of Reality Bob. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.